The flames of your torch blacken the low dungeon ceiling above you. Through the darkness, you can just make out a heavy stone door ahead. Moving closer, you see that it has a leering devil face, with a riddle etched on its draping tongue. It reads, I'm rarely touched, but often held. If you have wit, you'll use me well. After a short parley, you and your companions come up with the answer and say it aloud. Tongue. The door cracks open. The chamber beyond is deep and cavernous, more so for the darkness that claws around the marble pillars and the ceiling far above. You light the old braziers just inside the doorway, and a cleverly built system of blaze powder and grooves that run throughout the chamber ignite lanterns, sconces, and other braziers, gold, gems, and the gleam of far more precious metals from a giant mound upon which sits the dragon. It's coiled atop its riches, waiting for you. Your heart catches in your throat at the thought of fighting the dread beast. And then the smell hits you. Sealed in this chamber, the creature has long since died from lack of food. There are piles of its dung sitting in the corners, and for the life of you, you cannot fathom how this creature even got into this room. No way is that fitting through the door. Was it brought here as a dragonling, cared for, and then ultimately abandoned? How did it eat? Did it go insane, cooped up in this room? Did it die of starvation and somehow commit suicide from boredom? Next in this five-part series covering the adventure at the town of Borlane, dungeons are stupid. The significant challenges with dungeons, but why they are still valid, and why I still use them. This is Anatomy of a Campaign. I have a love-hate relationship with dungeons. They're a staple of the game sitting right there in the title, and they are ubiquitous throughout the hobby. When I hate the dungeon, it is not the dungeon's fault. As in the exaggerated example I gave at the beginning, I think the reason I dislike dungeons is because they encourage a certain kind of laziness. They're built to serve a game function with no thought to their actual function. Said another way, dungeons often exist for adventurers to adventure within. While I did make up the dragon example, I certainly have run into sealed rooms as a player with living creatures inside. No water supply, no other exits, no food. They're usually large predators, and I don't want to take a holier-than-thou position. I've certainly done it too. Less ludicrous, though no more logical, is the maze-like dungeon, with various chambers filled with undead or other adversaries, those capable of standing the isolation. They don't require food and water, or a bathroom. Well, what is this place? We'll say it's a tomb. A tomb for who? And what would possess someone to build it like a maze? Oh, well, to discourage grave robbers. Sure. If mazes discourage robbers, I imagine there'd be a lot more corn mazes in the world around tombs and cemeteries. Suspension of disbelief is required. I know that. Really, I do. But the location requires some degree of logic to aid in our suspension. More than that, perhaps most important of all, is that function will illuminate form and allow for the players to deduce things. 
Good environments are built to support things like the number of people who will live there, food storage and preparations, sleeping areas, bathrooms, heating, light sources, entrances and exits. Most importantly, what is the purpose of the place and or the people? Is it a mine, a fortress, a temple? Is it a tomb? Is it a real dungeon, aka a prison? Rather than design it from the vantage point of adventurers, design it from the vantage point of the people or entities who built it and what they were trying to accomplish. Then, when that is somewhat satisfied, look for ways to amend it to include some cool dungeon-esque elements. Age it, let the foundations crack or collapse certain areas, etc. Any living things that have taken up residence and repurposed the structure to their own needs would equally have a motivation. You have to tap into that as well. They can't be trapped in a locked room or have no access to food or water. If they're that dangerous, it means they need prey to hunt, and it can't just be adventurers. While they're a great source of protein, they're not plentiful enough to sustain a large monster over time. I will say that most published adventures, especially more recent ones, follow this design aesthetic. If the lack of functionality is a massive pet peeve of mine, it is this second beef I have with dungeons that makes them often unusable. They're just too damn big. Massive, sprawling dungeons with 40 rooms are impractical. I'm not even talking about the mega dungeons, but your basic two-level dungeon with 20 or so rooms for each level. Let me break it down for half that and what it means. A 20-room dungeon. Let's assume half of them have actual encounters in them, figure puzzles, traps, monsters, whatever. So there's 10 encounters. 10. I can get through two or three significant encounters in a session. That's four to five game sessions to make it through a 20-room dungeon, assuming exploring does not take up any significant time. For a group playing weekly, that's a month or more to get through a very simple dungeon. Two months for a standard dungeon. But wait, there's more. The D&D power system is designed to limit your ability to deal with major encounters. You run out of spells and cool abilities requiring short and long rests. The four-hour adventuring day is a real problem in dungeons. Do you back out and rest? Do you barricade yourself inside? Wandering encounters? What are the denizens of the dungeon doing while the party takes that rest? If they're intelligent, would they let the party rest? Would they allow them to recoup? Practically, it's even worse. After a month of real-world time, have your players begun to forget why they came down here in the first place? Is the tension and urgency lost? Were they rushing to save the princess, and now it's been five weeks? Have they been able to role-play at all? Or have combat and exploration taken over the game? Has it become a bit mind-numbing? My point is that dungeons have narrative pitfalls. If well-designed, they can do everything. Role-playing, combat, discovery, drive tension and drama. They can make sense and expand your world. But they're deceptively simple. I think they actually require more effort to ensure they keep the game moving along and not feeling claustrophobic. It's far too easy for them to make zero sense, to limit what the players do, and to sideline characters who have been designed without combat or dungeon crawling as their raison d'etre. For me, there are two reasons to use a dungeon or a dungeon-like setting. One is good and the other is less good, but honest, I think.
The good reason is that dungeons are scary. Delving into an enclosed space with God knows what is dramatic stuff. I think how reluctant Gandalf was to travel through the mines of Moria. He would have rather climbed over a mountain in a blizzard while stone giants were throwing rocks at each other than trek through Moria. They hide secrets, both expected and unexpected. Within the lost tomb is the mighty spear of the oracle, but unknown to the characters is the slod who have nested there, waiting for warm flesh to invade. This flavor won't come naturally. You have to work at it. A solid design and a very clear vision for what the characters encounter can go a long way towards setting the mood, themes, and emotional resonance of the dungeon. The less good reason is that Dungeons are constrained, and they trim back on the amount of things the players can do that was unexpected. The room has two doors, plus the way you came in. That's really three core things the players can do, and that's it. It's so very easy to make this a railroad, and that's what most dungeons are. Don't kid yourself into thinking that going left or right is a real decision. It isn't. That being said, there are ways to make the dungeon have real decisions and opportunities. I recently picked up the updated Keep on the Borderlands for 5e by Goodman Games. This is an example of a dungeon with real choice. There are multiple ways into multiple dungeons. Some of them connect. Some of them don't. There are factions and various entities to deal with. If you're going to run something like this, you're not taking the easy way out as a DM. There's a lot of player choice. There's also a lot of prep work that goes along with that choice. I often run short and somewhat railroaded dungeons. I don't say this as a point of advice, more as one of honesty. Sometimes I need to park them in a dungeon where they can't run off script too far. Honestly, it just makes my job a little bit easier. I'm not proud of this, it's a bit lazy, but I'd be lying if I said I didn't do it to some extent. The oozing temple from Out of the Abyss that I recently used for the game is not full of choices. It basically loops around, has a dead end, and then a path that leads to the only exit. The player choices were more about when to rest, how to approach the final chamber, and then ultimately how to deal with boss's imprisonment. Dungeons that are not railroads are going to put more responsibility on the players as well. It essentially means that they're going to have to be areas they can skip, there will be things the players will miss entirely, and they have to know that. They'll be making critical choices along the way. To choose to search an area and not search another, and they may never get to search that other area. You can't run railroady adventures all the time and then drop in a more choice-filled dungeon without warning. Player preparation and mindset are important. Yes, it's on them to be careful and know what they're doing, but if you drop them into a complicated dungeon structure with no inkling that things are different now, that's a problem. It's not really fair. You don't have to spoon-feed them, but make sure they have some clues and hints to the kind of dungeon they're entering. There are multiple dungeons in Against the Cult of the Reptile God, and I'm using only a small portion of them. I focused it all into the temple in Borlane, departing significantly from the module as written, which brings the characters through the temple and then a second multi-level dungeon later on. I depopulated the temple significantly as well. I'm adapting it to my purposes, which do not require a dozen encounters or more. A lot more. We just never get through it in any reasonable time. I suppose life stage matters. Are you playing for six hours, once a week or more? If so, then... 
big-ass dungeons may be the thing for you. In our group, we're all grown-ups with jobs, kids, and life responsibilities, and that means less time to be role-playing. We play every other week, and that means, A, we don't have a lot of time to play. We're only playing about uh, eight hours a month in total. And then, on top of that, the time span from when you begin a mission or a module or an adventure to when you finish it is way longer. It could be months. And if we went through something that was even remotely close to a, a mega dungeon, it would take us a whole year. And that's just ridiculous because in game time, there'd be a couple of days that passed. And in real world time, we've all aged and now we're decrepit and turning into dust. Okay, I told you what I've been avoiding, but what am I doing with the dungeon? Here's my thought process geared around the dungeon's purpose and what that means for the players. One, the temple is very old and has been boarded up for a generation or longer. It dates back to the old gods and is a place of power, as I discussed in the last podcast, but was considered a bit blasphemous by the now-fallen empire. Two, when built, its outward-facing purpose was to allow the local residents to worship their gods, make sacrifices, perform ceremonies, etc., Functionally, it includes living quarters for priests, a mean worship chamber, and hidden sacrificial chambers in the dungeon beneath. Third, Agoramaya wants to keep a low profile, so her defenses are limited to one sentry in the outer courtyard, with a more potent set of guards waiting inside. Fourth, guarding the lower dungeons are things that must be kept behind locked doors, pet monsters, and monster allies. And fifth, finally, there is the place of power, the hidden temple far below. This is where the party must go in order to raise Voss. Generally, from an encounter perspective, I think of it more in zones than I do rooms. The outer courtyard is the entry zone. The encounter is about dealing with the one sentry and gaining entrance. If they try to take the guard out and fail, he'll raise the alarm. If they try to sneak past him and fail, he'll raise the alarm. The goal is not to raise the alarm. The second floor is a transitional zone, as it overlooks the main worship chamber where the trap has been set. There's a magical door that helps protect entry from the second level. More on this later. The ambush involves magical darkness and a concentrated set of Yuan-Ti adversaries waiting for a chance to prove themselves to their mistress. In-game, the players walked right into it, but not in a foolish way. They were on their guard, and the initial sneak attack did minimal damage to the group. The battle that followed was brutal and taxed a number of party resources. It was a mix of ranged attackers firing from darkness and larger brutes who were able to jump out and hit the party at strategic weak points. Sidebar. Holding the edition wars aside, 4th edition was great for teaching new DMs. If you want to know how to build an encounter, go check out the 4th edition Dungeon Master's Guide. They codified all monsters with terms like artillery, brute, soldier. You could quickly build effective encounters and vary them to deliver different types of combat challenge. It really helped to codify things and give you building blocks. It was really, really helpful. So once the party got past this ambush, they explored the rest of the temple's first level, but it was largely abandoned. Agoramaya is not building an army. Rather, she's trying to bide her time to perform a ritual from the Balnexicon. 
The party took a short rest at this point, and that pretty much means they'll be dealing with her post-ritual as opposed to interrupting the ritual. Admittedly, it was the smart move. So they're feeling the time crunch, but they're also constantly considering backing out for a long rest. They decide to press on, but I notice that they're being far more conservative with their spells and special combat abilities. I talked about the troll encounter in the maze in the last podcast. The price for admission was Mir's life. In fact, the intellect devourer escapes, and Mir may show up again as an NPC, potentially a very potent villain, wearing the face of a former friend. The theme and mood of this very truncated version of the dungeon is like moving through locks of a canal, with each one getting more risky. But they always had the option to turn around. That's an important thing to consider. Is retreat an option? In the Oozing Temple, I locked them in there. That was one kind of trap. In the temple at Borlane, they're afraid Agoramaya will get away or worse. They won't be able to raise Voss. So they're pushing themselves, taking the next risk until it's too late. In the end, they find the secret temple and raise Voss. It too costs them. Augustus might be dead. They've taken hit dice damage as a function of the ritual. That too is something I borrowed from 4E as a way to illustrate exhaustion without it being 5E exhaustion, which would all but guarantee they could not survive this final encounter. It seems to be a dead end, and now they can hear something coming. At last, they'll face Agoramaya, but with no means of retreat. All that's great, but let me simplify what I did. 1. I vastly reduced the dungeon down from two dungeons and 40-ish rooms each to a single dungeon comprised of four zones and about five encounters. Second, the monsters were Yuan-Ti, servants of Agoramaya in the upper temple, with more monstrous pets in the first sub-dungeon. Third, a troll puppet of an intellect devourer proved to be the midpoint ordeal of the adventure, resulting in the death of a PC. A great loss. Fourth, the final dungeon encounter is set to be a solo fight against Agoramaya. Fifth, there was a magic door at the top of the temple. The players had to get past and traps surrounding the secret temple's altar. And that's basically it. Before we finish up, let's talk about two things. First, injecting role, R-O-L-E, playing into dungeons, and then the magic door. Dungeons are not great facilitators of social interaction. Of course it happens but it's not their natural strength. Exploration and combat happen much easier. After the ambush failed, I had Agoramaya telepathically contact the characters and probe at their weak spot. This is not a very cohesive team. They have doubts about each other. They're not so sure why they're here. Sure, they know the plan and the benefits, but in their hearts, three out of five are mercenaries. Agoramaya poked at these weak points. I thought it would go one of two ways. Either this would fortify their resolve to see it through to the end, or they might throw in with her. Here's the thing. She's not wrong. Sure, her plan sucks for everyone else, but the rest of the hags are evil, and at least Agoramaya is serving a real god now. What she wants is what all these new gods want to start working to save the world from the apocalypse that will come when the sleeping god Anu awakens. I got to play with that, have her make her case, offer to just give them the book, offer to help them, to be an ally. She has what she wants. The PCs are here to take it away now. 
Mir was the only one who wavered. What Agoramaya said about the coven was true, and I think he'd started to reconsider his allegiance to the other hags. Otherwise, all the characters told her to go pound dirt, and took her negotiations as a sign of weakness. They see her now as potentially afraid, which means they might have a chance. And that leaves us with the magic door. The party gained entrance through the second level. They climbed through cracks in the old temple. And this led into a chamber that was secured via a heavy stone door that was guarded by a magic mouth. When anyone approached the door, it said the word, Identify, loudly. They tried a whole bunch of stuff, saying their real names, mentioning the constable's name, Agoramaya, etc. The password was discoverable back in the town, but they never had a real chance to do that. Out of desperation, one of the players decided to try something a bit out of the box. For some reason, they decided to try kissing the magic mouth. It stands as one of the best moments of the campaign. As you can imagine, we were all very mature about this turn of events. Later, when what we'll call the kissing player, missed in combat or took a hit, someone would inevitably describe how a particularly fetching door caught their eye and distracted them. What type of knob does that door have? Can I try to pick the lock or do you want to use your tongue? Does it really matter how they got past the magic door? The answer is there's a druid. There was a druid in the party and it involved wild shape and a DM me ruling that ancient temples, no matter how well constructed, really can't have perfectly fitted doors. This really is the world's greatest game. So, to summarize, dungeons are stupid. Too often they lack any sense, seeming as if they were designed for adventurers to adventure. You should always keep their original function in mind, as well as the new function forced upon the dungeon by its new residents. Where possible, bring real choice to the dungeon, make it dynamic, and avoid thinking left or right is an entertaining character choice. Consider the realities of how often you play, and don't let your dungeon drag on for months of real play, or you can easily lose all sense of urgency in your game. Don't be afraid to shorten things so that they really fit your purposes. It's okay if you're not running through that 500-room dungeon. Next up in this Final Five series, character journeys. Looking at the characters and their arcs up until this point and how they are paid off in this final mission at the Temple of Borlain. This has been Anatomy of a Campaign. If you're enjoying the podcast, the best thing you can do is help us extend and promote our listenership. Depending on the platform you use for podcasts, you can give us a review, you can like, you can click the heart button, or you can reach out to us on social media. I'm on Twitter at AnatomyCamp, and you can reach me via email at phil at campaignanatomy.com. As ever, no players were physically harmed during the recording of this podcast. Thank you for listening.